Thank you for tuning in. My name is Dr. Lara Greenfield from laragreenfield.com, and you're listening to Let's Talk Facilitation. I teach college educators to be outstanding, socially just class discussion facilitators. My primary focus is to help educators, including those who are nervous public speakers, recognize the potential they already have within themselves to be outstanding facilitators and then to support them in developing purposeful practices. Today, we're talking about how to navigate difficult discussions. I'm going to address three common conflicts that can emerge in difficult conversations, especially those about systemic oppression, such as racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on, and what to do when they emerge in your class. In the last episode, I talked about how to prepare for difficult conversations. So if you didn't get a chance to listen in, I encourage you to go back later and check it out so that you can have strategies for minimizing the opportunity for messy conflict to erupt in the first place. I chose the topic of navigating difficult discussions because no matter how well we prepare, facilitation is about building relationships among people and where people are involved, conflict can always develop. It can be tempting to avoid important discussions because of the fear of not being able to handle the conflict. Indeed, certain conflicts not carefully navigated by a skilled facilitator can disproportionately negatively impact historically marginalized students. But we know difficult conversations are necessary for change to happen. So I'm going to share with you some tools to navigate particularly messy moments with a little more confidence. Now, the first type of conflict that can emerge in difficult conversations are microaggressions. So if you're not familiar with the concept, a microaggression is a regularly occurring pattern of aggressions. And these aggressions might come in the form of comments or actions towards marginalized people. Now, often they are indirect and unintentional, but nevertheless hurtful particularly in their cumulative effect. So what makes them so painful is not so much the sting of the one comment itself, but the fact that they hear it again and again and again and again. So let me give you a few examples. In a discussion, uh, microaggression might be when a facilitator compliments a black student for being articulate in a discussion. So this is a microaggression that occurs often, and the subtext is that the default assumption is black people aren't articulate. Another example of a microaggression is if a student asks an Asian classmate, where are you from, and are not satisfied with the answer, and instead follow up with, where are you from originally? The subtext here is that phenotypically Asian people are inherently foreign. Another example of a microaggression would be when a female student is constantly interrupted by male classmates. There's a pattern here that women's contributions are seen as less important, and so men are conditioned to feel more comfortable interrupting them. So why are microaggressions a problem? Well, they create hostile dynamics for students. There's an imbalance in power where the one uh, speaking the microaggression is 
asserting more power in the conversation. Microaggressions silence and other certain students. It perpetuates an injustice because it's dehumanizing and it inhibits meaningful participation by everyone. Now, it's easy to see why it's a problem, but it's harder to know what to do to address it. And indeed, addressing microaggressions can be challenging. There's a lot of reasons for why it's difficult to address. First, microaggressions are often indirect and subtle, so it's hard to prove that it was intended to be hurtful. Microaggressions are often unintentional. Uh, so even if they are hurtful, it's not often something the speaker intended to do. And so when they're called out on it, people can tend to be pretty defensive about it. It can also be difficult to address because microaggressions often seem minor. They seem like small statements. They're not overtly negative. And so the cumulative pattern and impact is often invisible to somebody who isn't familiar or on the lookout for them. And finally, addressing them can create social discomfort. Society sees accusations of discrimination as rude and oftentimes as ruder than the discrimination itself. And so our social norms and rules of etiquette about what we should talk about and what we shouldn't often make it hard for us to bring up. However, we do need to bring it up. So let me give you a few strategies for how to address this when it happens. First of all, I believe strongly that it is important to name when a microaggression happens. Ideally, you would name it in the moment. However, sometimes it's hard on the spot to get yourself together and figure out what to do. So addressing it later is better than not at all. Now, the goals for addressing a microaggression are, one, to publicly affirm the humanity of the target, the person targeted by the microaggression, and, and demonstrating in action that such insults won't be tolerated in your classroom. And doing that is an attempt to disrupt the pattern of those microaggressions and take it from an invisible harm to making it visible. The second goal would be to teach the class about it, to raise awareness of the impact of those kinds of statements or actions, and really transforming it into a learning opportunity. As a teacher, you are here to teach, and so this can be a moment of teaching. Now, in naming the microaggression, it's not about demonizing or shaming the person who made the aggression. Um, so when it's possible to use the calling in versus a calling out approach, that can be helpful. Um, but the, the focus really is to critique the content of their words or their actions and inviting them and the rest of the class to learn new information and to reflect on the impact of their choices and to do better next time. So I want to give you some, uh, an example of some language that you can use when somebody makes a microaggressive statement. So here's an example. I appreciate that you're trying to get to know one another better. Not everyone is aware that asking the question, where are you from originally, is actually part of a bigger pattern of discriminatory questions frequently targeting people of color, Asian people in particular. 
the implication is that white people are inherently American, whereas Asian people are always foreign. People don't usually mean to be hurtful by asking that question, but the impact of that question usually is. Do folks have any questions about that before we move on? Now, sometimes the original speaker will be receptive to your observation, um, and sometimes they won't. However, their receptiveness is irrelevant because you have achieved the primary goal, which is to defend the person uh, who's been targeted and to provide education to the witnesses. So the rest of the class who have observed this scenario play out learns from the fact that you have disrupted it and hopefully from some of the explanation that you have provided. The second type of conflict that often emerges in difficult discussions is when a student who holds a dominant social identity turns the discussion towards themselves and dominates the discussion. So for example, in a conversation about racism, when a white male student centers the discussion on himself. So let me give you an example of what that looks like. Let's say there is a discussion about racism in your course, and in that discussion, a black woman raises the subject of misogynoir, which is the unique intersection of anti-black racism and sexism. And let's say as she is discussing this concept and her experience, a white male student cuts her off and begins to talk about how he has it bad because he's poor and he's been through a lot in his life. And he complains about how the campus is always listening to people of color but never making room for white male voices. And he starts telling a story about his own hardships. Now, why is it a problem for this student to center the discussion on himself in this way? Well, first, it perpetuates the pattern of white male dominance that the discussion is attempting to disrupt. It silences black women in this case or marginalized voices in general, depending on the particular discussion in your class, which is a pattern. It also misses the point. The discussion provides an opportunity to address systemic injustice and imbalance in power. In this example, misogynoir. And by turning the discussion back on himself, he's missing the opportunity to learn about a new phenomena. Also, ethically, discussions about systems of oppression should prioritize the voices of those targeted by it. They have a unique experience and insight because of being targeted by it and should have the floor in ways that historically they do not. It is also a problem because the dominator in this situation is not, in fact, the victim of the systemic injustice that you are discussing. It doesn't mean that their life isn't hard. It just means that they have had the privilege of not having this particular problem as the reason for their hardships. And finally, when a, such a student is able to derail the conversation and focus it on themselves, it's disruptive to group cohesion and bonding and ultimately trust. So why is it so difficult to address? Well, oftentimes the speaker can be really defensive and it's hard to get through. 
And that's because they have been conditioned to maintain and defend their dominance. That's, it's the problem that we're talking about. Such students can also be self-centered and entitled, so it's hard to get them to see things from a different perspective, to see how they are impacting other students. And other students can be intimidated about intervening. Uh, oftentimes, the students see what is happening, uh, but don't know what to do either. And finally, as a facilitator, it can be tricky because intervening in this type of challenge requires conceptual knowledge of systemic oppression as opposed to individual prejudice, which is hard to teach convincingly on the spot in that moment. It requires a larger conversation um, and it's really a, a lifelong process of learning. So it's hard to figure out what to do in that immediate moment. So let me give you some strategies. First, we do want to disrupt it. And the reason is the same as with the microaggressions. We want to disrupt the pattern and we want to educate the class. And in this case, I want to put an even greater emphasis on the disruption goal. The teaching piece is important, um, but will require more time and energy, which could continue to detract from the original focus and giving the floor to that student who uh, needed it. So in that original example, the student discussing massage noir. So here's some simple statements that you could make that give the floor back to that original speaker um, who is entitled to it. So in this example, the black woman. So we might say, thank you for sharing your experience, Jim, but we are focusing on massage noir right now. Carla, is there anything else you wanted to share? Or, we have a limited amount of time to address Carla's important observation, and I want to keep us focused on that right now, Jim. Please hold that thought for later. Or, that argument perpetuates white supremacy, which we are not going to entertain in this class. I would encourage you to participate through active listening during this class period, Jim, and we can discuss your questions after class. And finally, the third conflict that frequently comes up in difficult discussions is a student arguing in defense of oppression. So here's what that might look like. A student says that they are going to play the devil's advocate in response to certain observations about systemic injustices. So somebody is talking about racism or sexism or classism, uh, and a student responds saying, yeah, but for the sake of argument, and then uh, lays into trying to discredit that point. Another uh, example of a student arguing in defense of oppression would be where they try to uh, provoke a debate which requires proving that injustice is real or that it is bad. So that might look like saying something about how slavery is already over and there, there's been a black president, so racism doesn't exist anymore. Or they might say it's human nature to judge others, so people should just grow a thick skin and move on and get over it. So why is engaging in this kind of discussion a problem to begin with? Well, we often experience in higher education 
a liberal argument that the marketplace of ideas is where good arguments defeat bad ones. And so that every argument is welcome at the table and through rigorous and rational debate, the ethically superior point of view will rise to the top. But in practice, that's not often what happens. Instead, it's simply through engaging uh, unethical arguments, it lends credibility to those arguments and in fact dignifies unethical claims. I argue that not every point of view is valid, that having to defend one's humanity is dehumanizing, it is hostile and harmful, um, and having to prove that your experience is true and painful is a form of gaslighting. Now, why is it difficult to address these moments when somebody is defending oppression, whether directly or indirectly. Well, the choice to do that is based in a different value system, that it that comes from a fundamentally different worldview about what matters and what doesn't and what is just and what isn't and what's harmful and what isn't and what we are trying to achieve in life and what we aren't. And it is tricky when people have oversimplified ideas about their rights to free speech um, and addressing it has the potential to blow up into a firestorm, particularly in the context of academia where uh, supposedly everyone has the academic freedom to profess their points of view um, when in reality the freedoms of the oppressor class is uh, supported more often in exploring and giving voice to oppressive statements, whereas the rights of people to defend themselves uh, is often less supported. So there is a, a double standard often when it comes to free speech in the academy. So what do we do when this happens in our classrooms? Well, first of all, we should not get sucked into the debate. No matter what, we don't want to dignify these claims by arguing and defending them. And oftentimes the people who are making these claims are not really interested in learning something different anyways, and so it is a waste of our energy. Instead, we want to steer conversations towards analysis of the problems and developing solutions. So rather than creating space to debate if the problem exists or matters, start from that assumption as the premises of the discussion that yes, of course, this problem exists and it matters and we're here to talk about solutions. So how might you say that? Well, here's some wording you might use. You might say, the devil has enough advocates, thank you very much. That line of argument is not going to contribute to the goals of this discussion. Or, we are not going to debate whether racism is real or harmful. If you are stuck in that point, I can direct you to resources after class. But for now, we are moving forward to discuss interventions. All of these examples are responding to conflicts that have already happened. In last week's episode, I talked about the importance of creating community guidelines and collaborating with the class to anticipate problems that might emerge and agree upon a plan of action for intervention. Add the three conflicts I addressed today to that list and invite your students to help you devise solutions as well before they ever occur. 
Also, at the end of last week's episode, I shared that I put together a free PDF for you, which includes a sample text of community guidelines that you can share with your students prior to class conversations to set the expectations for what engagement should look like. If you didn't yet get your free copy, you can still head over to lauragreenfield.com forward slash four to do so now. Thank you so much for listening in today. And until next time, happy teaching. Thank you.